Hi, church family. Uh, it's good to see you again. The uh, construction team, uh, the renovation is going great. I think you're going to be really pleased with what they, ha what they have together. Uh, the plumbing is all going in right now. Um, we can see the walls of the, the renovated bathroom going up. The carpet and paint is almost finished. It's looking great. I think you're going to be really, really pleased. Uh, but in the meantime, we're glad that we can connect this way, even if you can't join us at South Broadway. Um, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we love you. It's an exciting time for our church family. Before we dive into Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, as you're turning there, you can pause the video and wait a moment uh, while you turn there, but I'm going to pray for our time together. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word, we just pray that you uh, go before us and uh, place every word in the correct way. Place every word in the correct spot in our hearts. Father, we desire to be a gospel community that's filled with grace and mercy and love and humility. And Father, we know that we can't do this on our own. But Father, we know that, uh, that a church that loves each other and lives out the gospel will be a church that will reach their community and show their community how great Jesus is. Father, that's what we, that's what we long to do. So, Father, we pray that you um, give me the words to say in the right way. And anything that you don't want me to say, Father, just keep me silent. Let those words fall to the floor. Help us to understand your word better. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through... Uh, sermon series on the church. We've talked about what church is, why unity is so important. Last week we talked about righteousness and godliness, why that's important for a church. We're not, we're not trying to be godly so we can earn anything from God, uh, but godliness is still important for the church, that our message goes out more clearly and more powerfully when it's wrapped in obedience to Christ. If He is who we say He is, and He says what He says, he says, then we should obey what he says. And so we talked about that last week. And now this week we're going to talk about the type of community that we are. We're going to talk about being a gospel community, a gospel-saturated community. That's a powerful church. That's a church that's going to see God do amazing things. And so we're going to read together a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church talking about what it means to be a gospel community. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. So Colossians towards the back of the Bible, big number 3, it goes like this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. 
But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, then, in the church, in the gospel community, here, then, is not Greek and Jew, Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wow, that's a church that I want to be a part of. That's a church I want my girls to grow up in. That's a church I want my community to see. And so, what is this gospel community? What is this gospel community? Well, the first thing that Paul tells us, a gospel community, a church, we're using those interchangeably, right? Gospel community, church, a church family. A church family is made up of totally transformed sinners. Totally transformed sinners. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, if I were to tell you that five minutes ago, I was walking across the street to my office, and I was hit by a semi-truck going 100 miles an hour. Pow! Knocked me out. And I said, I brushed myself off, and I came up here, and I started recording this message. What would you believe? Well, such a big, humongous event. That is a life-changing event, if not a life-ending event. If I were to experience that five minutes ago, I would not look like this. I would not be alive. I would not be talking. I would be, at best, being rushed to the emergency room. And so if I were to tell you that, hit by a semi going 100 miles an hour five minutes ago, and now I'm here, you would believe either I'm delusional or I am a liar. We would all say that. Now, what I would tell you, and what I believe the Lord, the, the Lord God has spoken through His Word, is that an interaction, and indwelling with God the Holy Spirit in a saved life, that interaction is much more drastic than even an interaction with a semi-truck going 100 miles an hour. In other words, getting hit by a semi is much less drastic than an encounter, a saving encounter with Jesus Christ. 
And so, when we say we have met the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to who He is through the Word, and when I place my faith and my trust in Him, when I understand the gravity of the Gospel and His love and His mercy poured out for me, when I understand these things, when I repent from my sins and follow Jesus, when I am filled then with the Holy Spirit, that that interaction changes everything. Changes everything. I am never the same. The community of Christ, a church, is filled with transformed sinners, changed sinners. And that's what Paul says when he starts out. He says, for you have died. Now we know the Word of God says, what is Paul meaning here? That we have died with Christ. Paul describes, and God's Word describes, salvation as dying with Christ and then being raised again to new life. And so Paul says in his first paragraph, talking about the church, who are we as the church? He says, you have died and you have been raised with Christ. That's the picture of baptism. That's why we baptize people. When you come to Christ, the first step in obedience is proclaiming to a local body of believers, to your new church family, that you have died with Christ. Your old self is dead and you've been raised to new life in Christ. So, being hit with a semi, all these things we talk about, what the Word of God describes it as, it's as drastic a change as a person dying and then being raised to life again. That's drastic. That kind of coming to Christ changes us. Changes us. By the way, that, I want to give credit where credit is due. That example of the semi truck I heard from David Platt. I need to say that before I move on. Pastor David Platt. For you have died and you have been raised with Christ. And so, what we see here is what we talk about often and something that is so important that we need to grasp. Okay, we need to grasp. This is part of the drastic change. For believers, for faithful followers in Jesus, what happens to Jesus happens to us. We've died with Christ, been raised with Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. For the faithful, what happens to Jesus happens to us. We have died with Jesus. Our old life has been nailed to that cross. He took that old life for us and all of its sins under the wrath of God. He took that for us, killed that old life. That old life died on, with Jesus on the cross. And as he was buried, that old life, is, old life is dead and buried. It's done. And when Jesus rose again, it is as if we rose again to a new life filled with the Holy Spirit. Died with Jesus, raised with Jesus. And now Paul will say, he will say, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. So again, what happens to Jesus happens to us. Jesus Christ is bodily in heaven with the Father, and our life is with Him. He died, resurrected, and we are with Him. We are with Him. And then, the best part, when we are with Christ and we are in Christ, so what happens to Christ happens to us. Paul says, well, now we are looking forward to, because we are in Christ, we are looking forward to, when Jesus returns and comes in His glory, we will appear with Him and we will be glorified. What does that mean? 
all of our sins, everything finally falls away, and through God's power, we will be perfectly sinless. We will be glorified. We have glorified physical bodies in the new heaven and the new earth, no longer being sinful people. We will be glorified with Him. Paul says it this way, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What happens to Jesus happens to us. And so, since Jesus has our, our life, our life will change. Paul's point is, since we have died, our old life is finished. Since we have died and now been resurrected in Christ, we have been resurrected to a new life. And so, the community of believers, a church family, is first and foremost a gathering of sinners who have been resurrected from death to life. A gathering of sinners who have been transformed by the gospel. have been changed. Drastic change. Drastic change. Now, It is this drastic change that comes with the gospel, comes from the gospel. It is this understanding that we are in Christ, that we are now identified being in Christ and Christ in us. This new identity overshadows everything else about us. That's part of the drastic change. We have a new identity. That when we think about ourselves, the first thing that comes to mind is Jesus. That's how it should work. That's how it should work. So Paul says, Paul will tell us this. This new, this new church, this new gathering of believers in Jesus Christ who have been transformed by the gospel. He says in verse 11, Here... In the church, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ, our identity in Him, has risen to the top and He is our new identity. We're not Him, but we are in Him and He is in us. He's our new Identity shapes our new identity. Our identity is shaped by our following of Jesus. And so these differences that we used to have, Jews and Greeks, different ethnics, uh, ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different traditions, Jews and Greeks, remember, hated each other, and now they're in the church. And how can this be? Because their primary identity is not where they come from, not their skin color, not their traditions, not their culture. Their primary identity is that they are in Christ. So they can come together. Paul says circumcised and uncircumcised. Whatever our religious background and upbringing was, maybe we grew up in the church and we followed all the rules, but we did so self-righteously. Maybe we had that going for us. And maybe, maybe I, I grew up that way. That's who I was. I followed all the rules. I was a good preacher's kid. I thought I had it all figured out. I thought God was lucky to have me on His team. 
And then my eyes were opened to how big of a sinner I truly am, and I desperately need Jesus. I learned that at a young age when I came to Christ. Maybe that's me, that religious background. And maybe you're coming from outside the church, you don't know anything about Jesus other than you need Him as Savior, and you're learning how to follow Him. Those two different religious backgrounds, very religious, very different people, but those identities are now set aside when we identify with Christ. Christ is in all. Christ is in us. He is our identity. It says barbarian. Barbarians were non-Greeks. Uh, the Colossian church was filled with Greeks. And so the idea was we have Greeks and then we have everybody else. We have Greeks, the civilized people, the cultured people. The creme de la creme, we're the Greeks, we got things figured out. Our society, our culture, our technology, our politics, all these things are better. And then out there, somewhere over the walls, are all the rest of the barbarians. Barbarians are lesser, they're uncultured, they're unenlightened, they are savages, as you will. That's the idea, that's the mindset. And Paul tells us, no, 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 when you come to the church, our identity is in Christ. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter your background. Sophisticated, unsophisticated. Educated, uneducated. Enlightened, unenlightened. Doesn't matter. Our identity in Christ overshadows them all. Overshadows them all. This might be, we, we, might, we might look at it, we might be tempted as Americans. Let's look at our hearts. We might be tempted as Americans to say, the barbarians are the un-Americans. The barbarians might be, for some of us, immigrants or undocumented peoples. That's how our culture views some of these people. That's how, that's how the conversation goes too often. But all the politics aside, often the conversation appears, at least to me, to be tempted to lean in this idea of we've got the barbarians and then we've got true Americans. That's the temptation. Let's put aside politics and how we deal with immigration, all that stuff, but that's how the tempta that's a temptation for this kind of conversation. So in Christ there is no barbarian. There is no civilized and uncivilized. We come to the church and our identity is Christ. And he says, talk about barbarian, you want to talk about barbarians? And then he says, there is no such thing as Scythian. Now, Scythians were the worst barbarians ever. They were the worst uncultured. They were considered the unwashed masses, right? The, the lesser, lesser. And they were cruel, and they were warlike, and they were, they were the prototypical barbarian, the uncultured, the un-Greek, the un-American, the, whoever that would be. Maybe for us, the Scythian might be people from maybe the Middle East or the Taliban. I heard a, a story about uh, a, 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 a terrorist in the Middle East coming to know Jesus. It's an amazing story. And he's now, he's now trying to reach people with the Word of God. And think, think about how dangerous that, that is in the Middle East. But it's, it's that man. Maybe we know his background. And with all of our history about 9-11, all these things, we know his background. And what if he shows up into church? And we know maybe he was a member of the Taliban. Maybe he's killed American soldiers, whatever it is. And he comes into church. How difficult would that be for us? This idea that a Scythian is among us. There's no such thing as Scythian. He's a believer in Christ. His identity 
is Christ. Christ in us, us in Christ. Overshadows everything, even overshadows someone like that. His identity of Taliban or terrorist, whatever it used to be, his identity is in Christ. And Paul says this, this Christ overshadows it all. He says, slave or free, rich or poor, our identity is in Christ alone. So every human distinction disintegrates in the church. We don't say, I love him, but he's an ex. We, can't, we don't do that in the church. We don't love someone, but... No, he's in Christ. Ex is overshadowed. If he's a faithful follower of Jesus, doesn't matter who he is, where he comes from, he's in Christ. His identity is in Christ. Well, I love her, but she believes why. No, 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 no buts. We love her. She's a faithful follower of Jesus. Doesn't matter her background. Doesn't matter her beliefs. Even if her beliefs, some beliefs are wrong. If she's in Christ, that's her identity. The view of our Savior in one another totally eclipses any other worldly identity. And so Paul he tells us again who we are, our identity. He says, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So how should we treat the beloved of our beloved? Are you with me? How should we treat those who are beloved one, God, Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit? How should we treat our beloved ones, beloved ones? We should love them. They're being chosen by God, being in Christ, far outweighs any other identity that they have. That's who they are. They're in Christ. They're in Christ. Now, what we are going to find is when our identity is in Christ, that shapes how we act, how we live. When our identity in, is in Christ, like we said last week, we live life as Christians, our identity found in Christ. And our identity found in Christ means that the Holy Spirit will guide us into living a life as a faithful follower depicted in this book. So again, we're not, we're, we're not saying that when my identity is, is in Christ, it doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter how I live, doesn't matter how I act, doesn't matter my lifestyle, it certainly does. It certainly does. But our identity is first and foremost Christ follower. And so, since this is true that our life is in Christ, what should the community of transformed sinners be about? What should the church be about? So Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. So since you are in Christ, since that's your identity, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Our true life is in heaven, in Christ, with God. Therefore, set your minds in heaven, not on things of the earth. Meaning, let your true identity, your true location, your new life, be the eyes in which you see the world. 
Meaning, we're in heaven, our life is in heaven. Meaning, don't play around in the dirt. Be above the dirt. Don't play around in the sin. Be above the sin. Our identity is in Christ. So things like, don't let the world play around the dirt. Don't let the world make you hopeless. It's easy to feel hopeless. Especially this last year and a half. It's easy to feel hopeless. But one, one way we can see if we're living in the dirt and not living where our life is in Christ is are we hopeless? We've got to fight that. Don't let the world steal your focus on Christ. We are playing around in the dirt when we think more of politics than our heavenly reality. When we think more of how others have harmed us or burdened us, when we think more about our bitterness towards other people, when we think more about the money we have in the bank, when we think more about our high standing in other people's eyes, when we think more about how we can jockey for a higher position in people's eyes, we can push one another away. When we think about more of these things, we're playing around in the dirt. When we think about more about those things than we do about heaven, we're playing around in the dirt. So the community of Christ, that is the church, will not be dominated by earthly pursuits or earthly identities that come from politics or racism or condemnation or bitterness or impurity or anger or jealousy or gossip or slander. Because we don't want to play in the dirt when Christ has our lives and He is in heaven. Set our eyes on things above. So, a church family, we, we must guard our own hearts, we must guard what's going on in our church family that, and make sure that we're not playing in the dirt, being so focused on, on disagreements or gossip or politics or fear or all these things. We don't play in the dirt. We need to constantly be lifting our eyes to where our identity truly is in Christ. And so... So now, our identity is in Christ, we focus, we seek the things above, but if you're like me, you go, wait a minute, my identity is still in Christ, but I still sin. Yes. I'm still tempted to pull my eyes down from above, pull my eyes away from Christ and play in the dirt. We're still tempted to do these things, even though we are, He has our life in His hands, and He is in heaven, we're still down here. And so this brings up the principle in the Christian life of, of the already and not yet. We are already in heaven, but we have not yet arrived. So our eternal lives are already in Christ with God in the heavenly places. We are already with God's presence. God the Holy Spirit is in us. We're already in God's presence. Even here. Already. But we are not yet where we will be. We are already filled with the Holy Spirit. But yet we are not perfect. We are already guaranteed a place in Christ's kingdom. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we will be with God forever. We are already guaranteed to be in Christ's kingdom. But His kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet. We are already free of the wrath of God towards our sin because Christ has paid the price. We are already free from the wrath of God on us due to our sinfulness because Christ has taken our sin and our punishment on the cross. We are already free of His wrath. Already, we are not yet sinless. We are already beloved and chosen by God. 
but we have not yet fully quit playing in the dirt. Our physical lives are here on earth. We will physically die unless Christ comes first. We will physically suffer. We will still sin. We will still be sinned against. And so that is our already, but not yet. And so how do we live in a community of the already, not yet? Our identity is in Christ. We live in the already and not yet. How do we live in this environment? So my, at my house, we are, we are trying to, uh, to figure out our, our flower beds and our, our gardens. We're trying to, trying to update those things and trying to work on those. We've got a plan set. And I tell you, weeds just spring up all the time, don't they? Weeds have covered what we're going to be working in. They've covered it. And we, we pull them out and they keep popping up. And they keep popping up. You know this. In gardens, flower beds, and lawns, we are in a constant battle with weeds. What do we do? When they spring up, we cut them down. We kill them. We, we have to win that battle. It's a never-ending. If we're, if we're into gardening, we're into our lawn, it's a never-ending struggle to t wipe out these weeds. And Paul is going to say, we are a community of gardeners. In our hearts... Weeds will continue to spring up because we're still sinners. In other words, we are to be constantly putting to death the things of our old life, the things of earth. In other words, we must constantly work to seek to cease playing in the dirt. That's a complicated sentence. Let me say it this way. In other words... In the Christian community, we are a group of gardeners who will constantly remind ourselves to quit playing in the dirt, to cut these weeds out, and then to lift our eyes to Christ. He says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put these things to death when they spring up. Because we are in Christ, our life is in Christ, because we have been transformed, because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, put to death these things of the earth, these earthly things, playing in the dirt. Put them to death. When the weeds spring up, cut them down. When the weed springs up of sexual impurity, of passion, of evil desires, of covetous, covetousness, of gossip, of all these things. When they spring up, we repent by cutting them down. We repent, ask for forgiveness, seek forgiveness when we need to. We repent and we move on. We cut that down. That's the Christian life. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So we are, we are no longer under the wrath of God. Christ's blood has paid the penalty for our sin. We are covered. We are covered by the blood of Christ. But being covered by the blood of Christ does not mean we should live our lives in total sinfulness and abandonment. It doesn't mean we should live our lives constantly playing in the dirt. On the contrary, we see the price that was paid to cover us from the wrath, from the good and just wrath of God towards our wickedness and our sinfulness. We've seen the precious blood that was spilled for us. And we shouldn't just disregard that. It reminds me of, of when people get heart transplants. If I understand this correctly, when you're on the list to receive a heart, they want to see a pattern of your life, of a change in lifestyle that appreciates the gravity of receiving this precious gift of someone's heart. 
No drinking, no drugs, heart-healthy diets, exercise. They want to see that you have lived a life that is, understands the gravity of receiving such a gift. Someone died to provide that heart. And so Paul says, cut these weeds down, because those things, those weeds, those things that we, we were doing and we still struggle with, those things, the wrath of God is coming for those things. Now you and I, Christian, we, through faith in Christ, grace through faith, we have been covered by the blood. We are no longer under the wrath, but we should still appreciate the gravity of the sacrifice that brought us peace with God. So just as those people who receive a heart should appreciate the gravity and should, should change their lifestyle in accordance with that precious gift. The same is true of us. That's appropriate for a church to live in such a way that takes into account the gravity of the sacrifice given to us. And he says, lest we get a big head, he says, all these things, put to death these things. Verse 7, in these you once too walked when you were living in them community of Christians should have a very short memory for each other, but we should have a long memory for us. We should remember who we were and what we were like before Christ. We should have the humility to remember where Christ has saved us from, the depths of our sinfulness. The Bible says we are all sinners. The Bible says we have, none of us have sought God. None of us are righteous. None of us have done anything to endear ourselves to the Maker. In fact, all of us were children of wrath. All of us, Scripture says, were the enemies of God. And He has saved us out of that anyway. And that should bring some humility. To look around the outside, look around outside the church walls and say, Man, I'm no better than these people. The only difference is that I've been saved by the grace and mercy of God. So the community of God never forgets where we came from. The community of God knows that we still struggle with playing in the dirt. And that brings a kind of humility. We remember, and we still see, that we have dirt under our fingernails. We still do. We still do. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So, we know we're in Christ. We've been transformed. We cut down these weeds. And these weeds, is in a church family, we are to cut down malice and anger. When we start feeling that in church towards one another, we, we pluck that, we pull that weed out. We don't nurture that weed. We don't, we don't water that weed. We don't put fertilizer on that weed to hope that it springs up. We cut that out. We cut that out. A church that is faithfully following Jesus, a church that has its mind set on heavenly things, a church that remembers the dirt under our own fingernails, that remembers the precious blood of Jesus, will be a church filled with members that do not tolerate in themselves anger, human wrath, gossip, slander, obscene talk, and lies. When these things spring up, we do not tolerate them. We cut them down. We cut them down. That's a church family that we all want to be a part of. Now, look, we are gardeners. Church is a community of gardeners that cuts down in our own hearts. We see them spring up, the weeds springing up, the things of the earth. We, we, we try not to be playing in the dirt. We raise our, our eyes to Christ, and that brings with it some, some changes of attitudes and actions and words. We see that we cut those things out, but we don't just cut things. We also nurture what is heavenly in us. 
the things that are heavenly in us, the things of Christ. We nurture the things of Christ in us. So not only if we're a good gardener, as I understand it, I'm a terrible gardener, uh, but as I understand it, you pull the weeds, but you also need to nurture the good plants that are in the garden. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So we weed out the opposite and we nurture things like patience. We need to be patient with each other. We nurture things like meekness. Meekness is power under control. Meekness. Humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Our Savior, what did our Savior do to the first church? Right, Those 12 disciples were kind of like the first church, learning these things, being filled with all these things. Jesus washed their feet. Most powerful man who's ever lived. Perfect man, son of God. God in flesh. Do not consider equality with God something to be hung on to. His God, all the privileges of being God, he did not consider those things worthy of squeezing to death. But he, he emptied himself of those privileges, taking on the form of a servant, of a slave, washing the feet, even washing the feet of the one who would betray him. That is who we are to imitate. That is who, that, that nature is within us. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to produce. Humility, compassionate hearts, kind hearts. We nurture these things. What else do we nurture? We bear, verse 13, we bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. So in this church community, we're going to have baby Christians. We're going to have mature believers. We're going to have people all along in their run after Christ and we're all, we all have dirt on our fingernails because we're all tempted at times to play in the dirt. And so there are going to be weeds that spring up. And some of my weeds are going to be sinful weeds. And sometimes these weeds are going to harm you in church. And when weeds harm us in church, we are called to bear with one another. We are called to love one another. We are called to forgive one another. To forgive one another. And not just forgive one another, but forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. So I've got to constantly remind myself, and our church, our church family must constantly be reminding ourselves, no one will ever sin against me as much as I've sinned against God. This won't, not even in the same ballpark, not in the same league. People can sin against us greatly, and church can hurt at times. All those things are absolutely true, and have been true for 2,000 years, and will be true until Christ returns. We will still struggle with weeds and sinfulness and dirt, and the things of the world will tempt us. All these things will happen. But we must always remember that God has forgiven us a hundred million times more. Our sin against God is a hundred million times more serious and more evil and more wicked, and He has forgiven us. It's a hundred million times more sinful than anything someone has done for me or done to me. And if, since that is the case, we forgive others because the Lord has forgiven us. Gospel-shaped community, gospel-shaped churches are constantly remembering the good news of Jesus that we have been forgiven of every sin. And so we forgive others. And he says, verse 14, above all these things, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what should bring us together as a church? What connects us? Not our politics, not our sports teams, not uh, our hobbies, not our age, not our desires and preferences, and not, not any of these things. What binds us together as a church is love. We're united because we love each other. We love each other. We are family. We truly love one another. Love binds us together in perfect harmony. If it takes preferences to bind us together, we have not fully embraced being a gospel-centered church. If our desires bind us together, we have not embraced being a gospel-centered church. If traditions or politics or opinions or personalities, if those things bind us together, if that's why we're part of Trinity Baptist Church because of politics or desires or opinions or personalities or, or any of those other things, if that's what binds us, then we are not truly embracing being a gospel-centered church. He says, verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. You were called in one body. You, member of our church family, were called by God and placed here for a reason. You were called by God to this church body. So, knowing that is true, let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts. God has placed you here for a reason. And so, He has you here for a reason, knowing that we have differences of opinion on things, knowing that, that we have different weeds that will spring up and, and make forgiveness necessary, knowing these difficult things that we will walk through together. He brought you here knowing these things were coming, and He brought you here for a reason. So, knowing that that is true, that God is in control of why you are here and what we are doing as a church, knowing that that is true, let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts. Be able to say, Christ is in control. He has me here for a reason. I'm connected to these people for a reason. And until He brings me other places, I will be here. And I will love. And I will have a peace with this church family. So we let the peace of Christ reign in our hearts. We don't let the war of the world reign in our hearts. We don't let the things of the world reign, ah, you know, and, and bring war to our hearts and war between our church family. We do not let the war of preferences or desires reign in our hearts. We let the peace of Christ reign in our hearts. He says, and be thankful. I tell you, one of, the best, one of the best evangelistic tools we have is when people enter in among us to witness the gathering of transformed saints of God at Trinity Baptist Church. When they, when they see us, are we thankful? Does thankfulness just exude from us? Do we understand that we deserve nothing from God and He has given us everything in Christ? Do we see that? Do we sing like we are thankful? Do we interact with each other like we are thankful? Like we can't believe we are part of the church? Do we, do we exude that? That is a tremendous evangelistic tool. And so what nurtures this growth, he says? What nurtures, how do we nurture these plants in us? Let the word of, God, of Christ, verse 16, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In all wisdom. So how do we admonish one another? How do we build one another up? How do we, how do we speak truth into one another when we see weeds springing up? We don't do it. We don't do it based on our 
preferences or traditions or our philosophies or our theologies or our politics. We don't do it like that. He says, we admonish one another, we love one another, we teach one another by the word of Christ. By the word of Christ, we nurture the good things in one another and in ourselves by the word of Christ. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When we sing together, this nurtures in one another, nurtures in ourselves the good things of God. When we hear, when we hear one another sing the praises of God that nurtures these beautiful flowers of the things of God in, the heart, in, our, in our heart gardens, it nurtures these things together. That's one of the most that's why that's one of the reasons we sing together. And notice it says we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There are different types of songs that we can be singing. For 2000 years, they've had these discussions about what type of songs are best to be sung. That's it's not a new thing, it's an old thing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We sing together and we see each other sing. We sing in thankfulness. And then he says what overarching all of this Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything that we do as Trinity Baptist Church needs to be done with Christ Jesus at His forefront, at its center, glorifying Him, bringing His message of good news to those around us. Everything that we do, we need to have Christ and His glory central to what we do and why we do things. Why are we renovating? We need to be renovating because we believe that that will make us better equipped to make faithful followers of Jesus. We need, we, why are we getting bigger bathrooms? We're getting bigger bathrooms so our neighbors and our, our loved ones can have better access to important facilities as they come to worship God. Why do we have a family restroom? We want, we want single mothers, single dads. We want people who are coming in here who are trying to, trying to grab three kids at once. We want them to be able to use the facilities and feel safe and secure that they could come in and, and be taken care of. We need to be showing hospitality. Why are we having a push-button entrance to one of our doors so that those of us who have a harder time accessing our church can have a little easier way into our church facility? Why we do these things? Because we believe that these things can put Christ center and we can, we can glorify Him better and we can have better access to Him in all of these things. That needs to be the center of what we're doing and why we are doing it. This is the church community that I want to be a part of. And the way for me to see this church community come to be is to look in my own heart, in my own garden. And when I see the weeds spring up, pluck them out. When I see the Holy Spirit in me growing these beautiful plants, these beautiful flowers of patience and forgiveness and love for one another. I need to nurture that. How do I nurture that? I nurture that by diving deep into the Word, by singing together in thankfulness. All these things grow, these beautiful plants, in the garden of my heart. So will you commit with me to being a gardener? If we can have, if we are a community of believers saved and transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, and we are committed to being gardeners of our own hearts. That is a church that will glorify Christ. 
That is a church that will be attractive to non-believers. Let us put Christ at the forefront. We love you. We're excited to see you again very soon.